All right, Luke 5, 1 to 11. Here's what the scripture says. Uh, so it was as the multitudes pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Genesart and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Verse 3, then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, after he finished preaching, uh, Jesus said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Verse 7, so they signaled to their partner in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they have taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So uh, when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsake all and followed him. Amen? Amen. So what do you think is the point of this passage? What is Luke? Um, tell us here. God, the, uses God uses sinners, correct. Or pretty much like Luke's point here is how Jesus has called Simon Peter into to be one of his disciples, right? That's, that's the point of the whole passage from verse 1 to verse 11. But remember, when we, what we're talking about in our series now is Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels. We're not trying to learn about anybody else or the events. We're trying to learn more about Jesus, who he is, according to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what we're going to do today from this passage is not we're, we're not going to look particularly on the events of calling Peter to be a disciple. Rather, I want to learn what, what do we learn about Jesus from this miracle, from that event? What is that, that, the character or the econ economy of Christ? How does he work? How does he function? And that's what we want to learn about today. Amen? So we're going to talk about three things that we learn about from um, about Jesus from this passage. I feel like these three points are pretty timely for us as a church, but they also can apply to any situation because that's who Jesus is as a person. This is how he works. This is how he functions. Amen? Amen? So the three things that we learn about Jesus from this passage is this. Number one, overtime is his prime time. Amen? Over time is his prime time. Number two, we learn that his word is sufficient. And number three, we learn that his ways are different. Can we say these three things together? Number one, over time is his prime time. Number two, his word is sufficient. And number three, his ways are different. Let's start with the first one. Over time is his prime time. Let's look at our story in verse two. Jesus 
Remember what we talked about before? He was in, in, in Nazareth. That's where he preached his first sermon. And then he moved from Nazareth all the way to the Sea of Galilee, which is here, the Lake of Genesaret. And now Jesus in Capernaum. And he's preaching in the synagogues. This is a big, populous city, far much bigger than Nazareth. Remember, that's where we left Jesus last time. Now he's walking by the sea, and he sees these two boats that... Uh, just parking pretty much by the end, of, by the by the side of the lake, and the fishermen pretty much have finished their work. Right? We read that in verse two. But the fishermen had gone from the boats, and they were washing their nets. What does that tell you and me? Are they looking to catch any more fish? No. They punching out. Right? If you have a punch out at your job, that's what they're doing. They are punching out. The night is over. They did what they could. They got nothing. Now it's all done. They're just cutting their losses, washing their nets. They might go sleep or rest or something like that. They're just at the point that it is done, right? If you go ask Peter or John or James, hey, do you have any hopes that you're going to make any money today? They will say, our hopes are zero. We have tried and we have finished and it is over, right? They got at the end of everything. They washed their nets and they're ready to move on to do something else. But at that time when everything is over from their perspective, what happens? Jesus shows up. Hallelujah. Amen? And even though it is over, from their timeline and it makes sense it's over right it's the morning has gone the morning is up and the fish not gonna be caught anymore but even though it is even practically over when Jesus showed up his their overtime was his prime time amen when Jesus showed up he's changed everything in spite of the fact that it was technically over at that time I love Psalm 68, 20, one of my favorite verses. Here's what the psalmist says. He says this, Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs and escape from tough situation. Doesn't say that. Hey, babe, can you give me another one? This is, this is messed up. What does it say here? Psalm 68, 20, And to the Lord, to God the Lord belongs and escape. Does it say that? What does it say? Escapes? All right, does it say and escape or does it say escapes? Escapes is more than one, doesn't it? There's many escapes, right? And to the Lord God belongs escapes from tough situations, right? Does it say that? Escapes from what? Death. Now, I don't know about you, but when you reach to the point of death, that's the end of it, isn't it? Right? But the Bible says that to the Lord our God, even at the very end, when everything is done, when everything is over, when you get to the point of death, still to the Lord our God belongs not just a way out, but many ways out. Amen? When you and I reach our overtime, that is his prime time to show up and do mighty things. Amen? Wow. Our over time is his prime time. Let's look at the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Now, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are brothers and sisters. They love Jesus. Jesus loves them. They have a great relationship. Lazarus gets sick, and Mary and Martha sent to Jesus and say, Hey, guess what? The one that you love, your friend Lazarus, is uh, sick. 
when you would, you would think that, I don't know about you, but I like Emmanuel. If Barb calls me and say, Emmanuel is sick, well, I'll call him right away, right? I'll go check up on him and say, hey, what can I do to help you out? Why? Because I care about him, right? And that's what people usually do. That's what logic is. If you care about somebody, you, you move as fast as possible to try to help that body. But in John 11, 5 and 6, after Jesus heard that Lazarus is sick. Let's read this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he went as soon as he possibly could to heal him. What does it say here? So he stayed two more days in the place. Who, so look, this is crazy. Look at the verse word of verse six. What is it? So it's the 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 the. the so he loves them. The result of that is when he heard his sick, he stayed. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make any sense to me. Does it make sense to you? It doesn't make any sense. If you love somebody so, you should rush to them as soon as you possibly can. But no, when Jesus heard that he's sick and he knew that he could go there and healed him, Jesus decided to stay even more. And what happened to Lazarus? The one who was sick is now? Yeah. I don't know about you. I cannot even imagine the disappointment of Mary and Martha at that time, right? What is the point of prayer, they say? What is the whole thing about Jesus loves us? We go tell him, come and heal Lazarus, the one that you care about, the one that you love. And here we are. He stays there even two more additional days. And now Lazarus is? I don't know about you, but once you get to being dead, it's kind of over, isn't it? Right? It's done. It's over. And that's what they understood. It's already over. And even when Jesus came, they were talking to him. But none of them even imagined that Jesus will, will raise up Lazarus that very day. They all understood, yes, he will be risen, but it's going to be at the end of time. Right? Lazarus is dead. It's over time for Mary and Martha. It's all done at this point. Right? Just like the disciples, they washed their nets. It's done. It's over. What, what else can be done? Right? But when Jesus comes to the scene, even Lazarus, he was dead. Jesus says one word, Lazarus, come forth. And the one who's dead is now being raised from the dead. Amen? Sometimes you feel like it's over. It's done. And it can be done. But guess what? Our overtime is his prime time. Amen? Let's look at this. Another story in Matthew 14, 23 and 25. Now Jesus just fed the multitudes and he told the disciples to jump in the boat and cross the lake. The same lake that we're talking about here. Now, Jesus goes to the mountain to pray. And let's read this. Matthew 14, 23 to 25. He went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And it was evening now it's evening time just to give you a context at that time the romans and the jewish people divided the night into four quarters the first quarter starts from six to nine and then the second that's the evening time which we're reading about here and then there's another quarter from nine to midnight and then from midnight to three and then the fourth quarter is from three o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the morning that's when the dawn is. So now it's the evening, somewhere between six to nine, and Jesus is up on the mountain to pray. And look at this. He was alone there, but the boat is, was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by wave. What time? Evening time, right? Let's say 7 p.m. 
All right? In the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So think about this. Jesus in the mountain. He sees them from the mountain. They are in the middle of the sea. And they are trying to go against the wind. And they are in deep trouble. It's a storm. It's windy. And they are struggling. Verse 25. Now, in the fourth watch... So he let them go the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter, and now in the fourth quarter, the very end of the night, of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Think about that. Jesus loved his disciples, doesn't he, right? And he sees them at the evening time, they are struggling. And he led them through the whole thing till the fourth quarter. I don't know about you. But I can imagine that Peter and the disciples, by the time it is five o'clock in the morning, they said, you know what? It's done. Yeah. Right? There's no Jesus is not even here. He doesn't even know what's going on. It is all over. It is done. We just have to give it up and just go do something else. Right? But I tell you one thing for sure. If your Jesus and my Jesus can come to us walking on water, it should not matter to us what time of the night he's going to come to us. Amen? Amen? If he is that powerful, it should not matter to us even if he waits till the fourth quarter of the night. Amen? Because it might be over, over time for you and me from our perspective, for, but from Christ's perspective, our overtime is his prime time. Amen? 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 It ain't over till Jesus say it's over. Yeah. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Our overtime is his prime time. But number two, his word is sufficient. We learned that from this story as well. We read that in verse 4 and verse 5. When he had stopped preaching after Jesus finished his sermon, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled. Look at the word toiled. Not tried, but toiled. That means we really, really, really tried, right? We worked hard on this. We have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, let, let, nevertheless at your word, I will cast my net. Now, one commentator said that the nets that Simon and the disciples were using at that time were visible during the day. So it's, the fish can actually see the nets and it doesn't even make any sense to try to catch the fish during the day. It's counter logic. It's counterintuitive to try to catch fish during the night. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But let's put it this way. The professionals, Simon, John, and James, the yeah. fishermen by trade, went out to fish at the night time yeah. for a reason, right? Yeah. We might not know all the uh, tricks of the trade, but we know there is a reason why they went out fishing at night. It wasn't because Simon has insomnia and he said, hey guys, I have nothing to do. Why don't we go fishing, right? They had a reason why they want fished at night. It was the prime time. It was the time that makes sense for them to fish during the time. No. So when Jesus said, go cast your net, Jesus actually commanded him to do something that is counterintuitive, something that absolutely doesn't make any sense for him to catch any fish. Right. And, and the words of Simon here in verse 5 is not like, I can imagine he's saying it like, I don't understand what you're doing, but you know what? 
I'll do it just because you say so. But if you ask my opinion, I say, let's not do this, God, because this is a bit crazy and nothing going to come out of it anyways. Don't think these are words of faith-filled enthusiasm that Simon answered Peter with. They're more like, you know what? I'm just going to try to do it so you don't have to tell me that I didn't do what you wanted me to do. Kind of get it out of the way. But he was not expecting anything to happen, right? But his word is sufficient. Amen? I told you this before. That only difference between faith and stupidity is a word from Christ. If you do crazy things without a word from Jesus, you are absolutely crazy. But if you do crazy things because Jesus has promised or asked you to do it, then that's faith. You guys are with me. Even in our story here, if Peter, without a word from Jesus, would have cast out his nets, he would have absolutely got nothing. And everybody would have the right to ridicule him because he's doing something absolutely doesn't make any sense. That's flat out stupid. Right? But because he has a word from Christ, because Jesus said, go and do this, that word of Jesus changed stupidity to faith. Amen? Amen. And throughout the scripture, we see the exact same thing over and over and over again, that God says a word that is absolutely counterintuitive. But when you obey in faith, what God has promised comes to to pass in spite of the fact that it doesn't even make any sense for us to even obey God. Amen? Let me give you a couple of examples. My, one of my favorite is Gideon in the book of Judges. Now, I don't know. Gideon, God, God, God called him to fight the Midianites. So he gets his army together, 32,000 people, and he goes to battle. And we read about the Midianites that Gideon was about to fight in chapter 7, verse 12 of the book of Judges. And we read this. Now, the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of in the valley as numerous as locusts and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitudes i don't know about you that doesn't look fun to me right when your enemy is that big now Gideon, to his credit, has 32,000 people by his side as well. It might not be as big, but, you know, he probably think to himself, well, I have 32,000, and I add to that the power of God, then I still have a chance that I might beat that insane number of the Midianites and the Amalekites. But then God comes to Gideon, and he tells him this. Verse 2, if you go back in the story. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too few for me to beat out the Midianites and the Amalekites. Does he say that? Too many or too few? I imagine when God told that to Gideon, Gideon is like, God, wait a minute. Let me go get a a Q-tip because I'm not sure if I'm hearing you correctly. You're saying there are too many or there are too few? And God said, there are too many. I was like, God, just look at the Midianites. Just, just look over there. Do you see how many they are? You're telling me that the 32,000 people that I actually can number are too many for you? Again, is these people that cannot even be numbered? And God said, yes, these are too many for you. I don't know about you, but it's hard to do business with God sometimes, right? It's hard to have God to be your business partner because this doesn't seem like something that is logical or make any sense. This is counterintuitive when you're going to a fight and you're trying to look instead of increasing your army. And God said, you know what? Just tell them if anybody's afraid, let them go home. How many goes home out of the 32,000? 22,000 people go home. And I can imagine Gideon's heart. 
drops when he sees that his army has been reduced from 32,000 to only 10,000. Like he better, he's thinking to himself, God, you better know what you're doing here because that doesn't make any sense to me. And God comes back to him and says, still too many. Like, God, just, just, God, let me take care of the war part. You just do the miracle part and let me do, take care of the war part. Because obviously, you don't know anything about armies or about fights. How come you say these are too many? And, get, and God said, take them to the water. So they go there and only 300 just put their hand in the water and drink like dogs. Everybody else just went all the way down and start licking the water. And God said, I want only this 300 to fight the Midianites. That is counterintuitive. Amen? That doesn't make any sense in any logical sense, does it? Right? And you want to hear an even crazier story? These 300 people didn't even need to raise a sword or fight anybody. They didn't even need to kill a single soul of the Midianites. All that they had to do is blow the trumpet and they broke the vessels that they have in their hands. And the Midianites start killing themselves. And these 300 people didn't even need to fight. Amen? 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 God's word sometimes can sounds to be counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. But when you do what God has commanded you to do, the word of God will come to pass. Amen? Amen. Now, if Gideon would have not heard from God and at random, he just decided to reduce his army from 32,000 to 300 people, I tell you, Gideon should have been in a mental institution, right? Because that's absolutely nuts that you're going to go to fight and you're lowering your army and you're doing something so counterintuitive like that. Amen? Amen? Amen. But his word is sufficient. His word is enough. If Jesus said do it, then it doesn't matter how difficult or how counterintuitive does that sound to look to you and me. We need to obey because his word is sufficient. I look at, that, at our church. Obviously, I've been here for four years, and this is just not working the way it's supposed to be, right? I don't understand it. I, it. It frustrates me because this is not how I like things to go. But I don't know. Jesus said, go and preach the gospel. Jesus said, go tell people about me. This is what we're doing. We're not seeing any results. I, but guess what? His word is sufficient. Amen. I don't think... Maybe we should, I don't know. I just think we don't need to change strategies. We don't need to try to modify his word because it's just not working yet. We don't need to have to find ways around his word. We just need to keep trusting him and keep plowing through and keep trying to do what he has asked us to do because ultimately his word is sufficient. Amen? Amen. Now, another story. Elijah in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 17. He's trying to bring the nation back to God, and he brings the prophets of the Baal, and he said, you know, the God who brings your offering, and that brings mine, and the God who answers with fire is God. It's like, good deal. So the prophets of the Baal start praying from the morning till the evening, and nothing is happening. Now Elijah's turn to pray. And what does Elijah do? He says, bring me some water. And he asked that they will dump the water on the sacrifice. They made a trench around the, the altar. And they poured water on the sacrifice, on the altar. And the water actually filled up that trench around the altar. I don't know about you. That, does, that sounds pretty stupid to me. Right? Because remember, Elijah is trying to light a fire. Right? And when you're trying to light a fire, the thing that you should keep the furthest away from the fire is? 
Because water will quench that fire, right? What Elijah was doing doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely counterintuitive. If anything, you should keep the water as further possible, as further away possible from the fire as much as you can. Because you need the fire to come unhindered and make it so obvious that this is fire. It's not just a small little light here and there. Amen? But Elijah knew one thing for sure. He has a word from God. And when the fire of God comes down, Elijah knew that there's absolutely nothing that can stand in the way of God's fire. And that's what happened. When you put water and fire together, who, comes, who overcomes who? The water overcomes the fire or the fire overcomes the water? The water overcomes the fire. But guess what happened in 1 Kings 17? The fire licked the water, evaporated the water, and devoured the sacrifice and devoured the whole thing. Because this is no ordinary fire. This is the fire of God. Amen? Amen? You can do counterintuitive crazy stuff, but just make sure before you go do crazy things that you have heard from God. Because if you have it, you're just crazy. But if you have, then whatever you do, God will bring it to pass. Amen? Amen? I meet a couple of pastors who very well-meaning, and they, they just, like, they love the Lord, and they were trying to help me and help our church. And the recommendation is like, you know, why don't you try to, like, change the church looks a little bit, make it more modern instead of looking 50s. And, Please, trust me, I don't look the 50s look of our church. There's no question about it. But I, on purpose, refuse to do that. Amen. You know why? Because I don't want people to come to the church because our building looks Amen. nice. Or because we have, I mean, we have to, to, to strive for excellency. This is not the point here. But the point is, I want people to come anointing from God in this place because God is in our midst and that's why people are coming here it's not because we have the fanciest of buildings not because we have the greatest of the kids programs all is good I'm not saying any of that is bad but what I'm saying is the draw should not be attracting people to come here it sounds counterintuitive when you're trying to get people inside the church to have a fifth a church that looks like in the back in the 50s but guess what guess what God, when the fire of God falls down, there's absolutely nothing that can stand in God's way. Amen? Amen. So we'll do it for now. Let's see if it's going to work or not. <laughs> but for now, we're just going forward with this theology. But again and again and again, you got to make sure that is a word from God. Jesus said, go preach the gospel, heal the sick. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to pray for the sick. We're trying to tell people about Jesus. His, that's his word. It doesn't work so far. It doesn't mean we, ch- we need to change our method. We just need to keep doing what he has commanded us to Amen. do. Amen? So what two things we have learned so far about Jesus. Number one, overtime. Our overtime is his prime time number two his word is sufficient number three his ways are different and this is the part that bugs me the most about Jesus in a way to be honest with you his ways are different than ours look at our story in verse five we read this um but Simon answered and said to him master we really have toiled all night and we caught about like two dozens of fish nothing much it just doesn't seem good good night for us right is that what he said How much did he catch? Nothing. 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 Why why nothing? 
Why did he catch just a dozen of fish? It's not a lot. It's just, but it gives him a little bit of hope that there still might be some fish in the sea because he got like 12 of them. He got a dozen. I mean, it's not, it's not like a move of God or anything like that, but it's just a tiny deposit, a tiny down payment of what he can actually catch, right? But he got what? Zero. And I hear that. He got zero, right? But then when Jesus said a word, the problem became totally opposite. Now, the problem is that he has no fish. The problem is that he has too many fish. Isn't that amazing? Jesus takes you from one problem to another problem, right? But one bad problem to another good problem. He had too many fish. It, I mean, a professional fisherman. It says this in verse 9. For he and all who were professional people have been doing it all their lives. And look what it says. We're astonished at the catch of fish. This blows their mind away. They have never seen anything like this before. And these are the professionals. Amen? Yeah. And they have seen nothing like this. The fish was about, the nets were about to break. They had to call another boat so they can just work it out together to bring all that catch to the land. And remember, this is in the wrong time. This is daytime. Remember, they just toiled all night and they got absolutely nothing. You guys understand oh, yeah. how Jesus' ways are just so different than ours? Amen? Amen? If you have, for example, if you have a child, a son or a daughter, somebody that you care about who's a dear friend, and you're praying for them to come to know Jesus. It will not work this way. It will not work that you pray for a month or two, fast a day or two, and now you see that your friend who, uh, who is far away from Jesus all of a sudden now is being set free from drugs. And then you pray for another month or two, and now all the way they're set free from alcohol. And now you pray for another month or two, and now they're all, all the way, they're set free from cigarettes. And then a month or two, and all the way now they're born again believers, love Jesus, on fire for God. You guys are with me? It's not like you pray a little, and the more you pray, the gradual transformation you see, till eventually you see the full picture. I, I, will, I wish it worked this way. Because I'm a person who's like, I, have, I would like to have a timetable. I would like to have a plan. I'd like to know where I'm at and where I'm going. I don't like being left in the dark when things are not working. I don't like that. I hate that. This is not my personality. Yet precisely, sadly, well, I guess this is how Jesus precisely works. He leaves you in the dark for so long, and then when he shows up, he shows up. Amen? It doesn't work when, if you have a friend or a sister or a family member or a son or a daughter. If you're praying for them, it actually might work the opposite way. You might start praying for months or two, or, and now all of a the sudden, they're picking up cigarettes. It's like, God, I'm praying for their salvation, and now they're actually going further away from you. A month or two later, now they're picking up alcohol, and you're just like, God, what am I praying for? Am I praying for them to go deeper in sin, or they to go away from sin? You keep praying, and now they're drug addicts. I'm like, God, how does it even work this way? I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm seeking your face, and the harder I pray, they go further and further away from you. It doesn't work this way, God. But guess what? When God shows up he changes nothing to plenty as we have seen in our stories amen Jesus can show up one time and it doesn't matter how deep in sin that person is that the life-giving transformation of Christ will change them so radically that from nothing they will become everything amen, amen. 
this is how he works. And again, I'm making a confession this morning. I don't like it. But sadly, <laughs> that's how Jesus works. Amen? You pray and you seek and you knock and you keep trying. And then nothing happens. But when he shows up, he shows up. Amen? Amen. Let me give you a couple of stories. Rachel in the Bible. One very interesting story in the Bible. So you know Jacob married. Rachel and then he married two of the concubines and he had 12 sons and one daughter. Now in the book of Genesis, I think chapter 29, we read that Leah, who was not favored by Jacob, she had four sons at that time. And Rachel barren, she has no kids. So we read in Genesis 30 verse 1 this, now when Rachel saw that she when Rachel saw that she, Leah bore Jacob Okay, I apologize. When Rachel saw that she, Rachel, bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. I mean, wrong guy. And then he answered, But since Jacob had, well, I apologize, or, or else I die. She's barking under the wrong tree. Obviously, Jacob cannot give her any more children. And apparently from that point forward, after Jacob has four kids, four sons with Leah, she starts praying. And when she starts praying, guess what happens? Leah and the concubines start having more kids. God did not answer Rachel's prayer. When Rachel keep on prayer, God keeps giving more kids to Leah and to the two concubines. As a matter of fact, from that point forward, when the, docu the, the, the frustration of God gave Jacob from that point forward six more sons and a daughter. Think about that. Imagine Rachel's frustration, right? Here you are praying, asking God for something not bad. Just open my womb so I can have a child. Is that too bad to ask God for? And what does God do? He does not just stop everybody from having kids. He sees that her rivals are having more and more kids and her situation is not changing at all. I don't know about you. That's very frustrating, isn't it? It seems like you're really wasting time because you're praying. It's not God not answering anything. He's doing the opposite, the exact opposite of what you're praying for. Amen? But then we read in chapter 30, verse 22, this. Then God remembered Rachel. It's yeah. not that he forgot her, but now all these prayers that she has praying, now God is about to intervene and answer these prayers. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And who is the child that Rachel gets at that point? Anybody knows his name? Joseph, right? Now think about this. Even though God waited for Jacob to have Ten sons and a daughter at that point. Yet when God gave Rachel a son, he did not give her an ordinary son. Yeah. He gave her the one to whom all the ten brothers and the sister eventually bow the knee before him. Yeah. And ultimately Joseph ending up having the birthright, uh, the birthrights, not Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. You guys are with me? So in an essence, what God, it's as if what God gave Rachel is really Jacob's firstborn. And all these 10 years or 11 years that he had 11 more kids, God restored and compensated. And he put Rachel's son far ahead of the 10 that they already came to existence. You guys are with me? Yes. God works this way. Like 
our story. He, the disciples get nothing, but when Jesus shows up, the nothing is turned to insanely crazy a lot of fish. You guys are with me? Yeah. He didn't answer Rachel for so many years, but when he answered, he gave her the Everyone bowed and, the, and he became ultimately the one who has the firstborn rights. Amen? Amen. That's how God works. I don't like it for one to be honest with you, but that's how God works. Amen? Amen? Let me give you another story. Joseph in the Bible. Again, Joseph gets a word from God. He has these dreams that um, he, all his brothers will bow to him. Now, Joseph is a son, right? The son of Jacob. Actually, he was Jacob's first son. You would imagine, I heard this from a, a preacher in Egypt, so this is not my own, but I heard it from him, and this makes insane sense. You would imagine if God tells you, hey, you're going to be the man. Everybody's going to bow the knee before you, and he gives him a vision and a dream about that. The natural senses, what you think things going to happen is that the one who's the son of Joseph might eventually you know, migrate to Egypt, get a job in the government, or work somewhere like very respectful, very prestigious, and then start getting promotion and climb the corporate ladder one step at a time till he get to the point eventually to be the second man in charge, and then all his brothers come to bow the knee before him, right? That's how logic works, right? If you're gonna get all the way to the top, you start from the bottom and make your way up, right? That's, that's makes sense, that's logic. But God doesn't work this way, look at that. The one who's a son, all of a sudden, became a slave. Now, I don't know about you. When you change from a son to a slave, is he moving closer to the word of God and the dreams that God is giving him? Or is he moving further away from the dreams that God is giving him? Further away. And that's not even enough that he became a slave. He also moved from being a slave to being a prisoner. I don't know about you. Is he, to you and me, is he moving closer or is he moving further away from the word and the promises of God? Further away. He's not getting closer to be the man in charge. Actually, he's going away from being the man in charge. Our logic works like this. Son plus job plus promotion equal the second man in charge. Amen? But God's economy is different. God works like this. Son plus slave plus prisoner equal the second man in charge. Amen? Amen? God works differently. I can't imagine Joseph that day when they came knocking on his door. Remember, even when Pharaoh had the dreams and he's looking for somebody to, to do the interpretation, Joseph doesn't know anything about that. He's just still in the dungeon, still in the prison, doesn't know anything that is going on, even, God is, even though God is working behind the scene. And I can imagine, like, think about this. Joseph sitting in the prison. He woke up in the morning, thinking to, me, to himself, another day in the dungeon. Yeah. Right? Just nothing going to happen today. Today is just going to be like yesterday, like the day before, like the, the years that I have been here in the dungeon, and nothing is absolutely happening. He thought to himself, another day in the dungeon. But I tell you, friends, there was everything but another day in the dungeon. Amen? That was the time that God has appointed to show up and change everything once and for all. The door is open and they take Joseph from the very present to the, the prison to the very presence of Pharaoh and that very day before he went to bed he was already the second man in charge in Egypt. From the bottom to the absolute top. You guys are with me? This is how God works. From absolutely no fish to abundance of fish. Let's just stop here. For our church, let's just drive it home. 
I don't know, I, I'm for one again, I would like to see some progress. I'd like to see at least one person getting saved every couple of months and then eventually, you know, like we see more and more people coming to know Christ, but it's not working this way. And I feel like God is speaking to my heart, hopefully speaking to all of us this morning that we just need to keep on praying. Amen. We need to keep on pursuing because he's the God who can show up one time, change nothing to absolute everything from the present to the presence of Pharaoh, from, from absolute... Rachel, who had absolute barrenness, to the guy to whom every bond bows the knee. Amen? Yeah. If you're loved ones are getting lost even more the harder you pray for them just like Mary and, La and, and, and Martha who sent to Jesus and say hey uh, your, our brother is sick and when they prayed and instead of Jesus coming to heal their sick person their prayer answered the opposite way now Lazarus is uh, dead if it seems like the harder you pray the worse things come then guess what you need to do you just need to pray even harder because our God needs to show up one time to change everything. Amen? He doesn't go gradually. He goes from zero to a hundred in one minute. Amen? What about the dry bones? What is what? Oh, that's fine. We'll finish it some other time. But this, we're taking too much time. <laughs> Let's close our eyes and pray.